0: We're glad you're here. But now he's sick. And in fact, it's his final illness. He's on his deathbed. So Joash, also known as Jehoash, you'll find both names here in this text. King of Israel, he comes to pay his respects to the man of God. Now if you remember anything about the kings of the northern kingdom, every single one of them was bad. And Joash is no exception to that. He's a wicked man. You read in verse number 11, He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. So he was not a godly man, but seemingly he at least wanted to outwardly appear to be a worshiper of God. Or maybe he just regretted the fact that in Elisha and losing him, he was losing his real connection to God. So for whatever reason, he comes to visit Elisha here on his deathbed. In verse number 14, When Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Maybe here we see an indication of why he valued Elisha so much. Elisha was God's man, and he was more valuable to the defense of Israel than any army was. If you were here last week, I think back to that story we looked at in chapter 6. Remember where the entire mountain roundabout is full of chariots of fire? Elisha even knows the battle plans of the king of Syria. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And maybe that's what he's regretting here. God watched over Israel through his man, Elisha. And now that's passing away. That's a tremendous loss to the nation. But Elisha had one final prophecy to enact. It actually relates to the defense of Israel. He tells the king to go get a bow, some arrows. And he tells him to open up the window that's facing east. That's towards the Transjordan, which would have faced territory that Syria now held that actually belonged to Israel. And in the midst of all this, Elisha actually takes the king's hand in his hand. It's it's like a father might grasp onto a, a son. And he tells Joash to open the window, and when he does, he tells him to shoot an arrow out the window. And he says then, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. Then notice what happens next. This is very strange. It, It was read just a moment ago. He said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you'd made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. What in the world is going on here? Elisha tells Joash to strike the ground with the arrows, and he does that. And almost immediately, Elisha's angry about how Joash did what he did. Why is that? Well, Elisha's mad because he doesn't strike the ground more times than he did. How many times did Elisha tell him to strike the ground? Well, he doesn't. He doesn't tell him. So Joash strikes it three times. I don't know of anything particularly wrong. With the number three, it's not inherently a bad number. In fact, you look through scripture and you see that three seems to have some symbolic importance at different times. So what is the problem with Joash striking the ground three times with the arrows? I don't think the problem here has anything to do with striking the arrows per se at all. The problem here is... With Joash. Remember again what the writer of Kings has to say in evaluating him. He did that what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Joash is a wicked king. He's not a godly man. Oh, sure, he likes the prophet Elisha well enough. He's come here to pay his last respects to the old man and even speaks so complimentary of him. We read a moment ago, my father, my father, he calls him. And he mentions that he's more valuable than the chariots of Israel. He delivered that whole Syrian army into the king's hand at one point. But Joash, in his heart of hearts, is not a godly man. And so all this God talk that Elisha starts to get into here is lost on him. He doesn't get it. This has no relevance for him. Elijah asks him to shoot this arrow out of the window and basically he humors the old man. Sure, okay, I'll fire the arrow out the window. But when Elisha talks about the fact that the Lord's arrow of victory, that just misses the mark entirely with him. And then Elisha tells him to strike the ground, again, sure, fine, there's no passion, there's no conviction there, he's just going through the motions. He's just doing it because the prophet's telling him to. He's playing the game. It's just a waste of time. It's pointless to him. And Elisha gets angry because all of these actions had symbolic importance. We see frequently that God teaches lessons, even prophesies through symbolic actions in Scripture. We can think about one that we participate in every Sunday there at the table, eating the bread, drinking the cup. That's a a symbolic sermon that's enacted there week by week. Or if you want to think of another example from the Old Testament, one that we actually saw a few weeks ago, 1 Samuel chapter 15. You remember this story. God tells Saul to go and utterly destroy the Amalekites, and he doesn't do it. This is when God finally rejects him. Samuel comes to confront him. He tells him that God's rejected you from being king. And Samuel turns to go. And when he does, Saul reaches out and he grabs his cloak and it tears. And Samuel turns back around and he says, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you. It's the same thing. It's a symbolic prophecy that's enacted here. That's precisely what's transpiring here. Elisha is symbolically urging God's people on to victory over their enemies. He wasn't going to be there anymore in person, but the battle against the Syrians was going to continue. And through this symbolic action, Joash was being called to a particular task. See, the problem with Joash is he's oblivious to all of that. He's doing what he always does. He's over here in one place. God is over here. And they're never going to get together because Joash is just not a godly man. And because he's just going through the motions, he's missing out on all the blessings that God intends to give him here. He only strikes the ground three times, and so he's only going to defeat the Syrians three times. If he just struck the ground more, he would have defeated them utterly. They would have been rid of this enemy. But now he's only going to be given victory three times. See, a godly king might have said something like, tell me how many times you want me to strike the ground. I want to be sure that I do what the Lord wants. Or a godly king might have said, I want to go above and beyond what the Lord has asked. I don't want to do just the bare minimum. I think about another king that we've looked at in these Sunday night lessons, Asa of Judah, and what the prophet Hanani tells him on one occasion. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. God is diligently searching for people who are wholeheartedly committed to him. He's looking throughout the entire earth for people like that. And when he finds those people, he promises that he's going to be fully committed to them in return. The question we need to ask ourselves this evening is, do we believe that? Do we believe that God is diligently seeking for people who are 100% completely wholeheartedly committed to him? Do we believe that God will, in return, give his support to people who are committed to him? And if we do believe that, and I hope hope everybody here believes that, but if we do, it raises a really serious question for all of us who are Christians. Why are we not more committed in return? The only answer I can think of is that we don't take God seriously a lot of the time. We think sometimes perhaps that what we do isn't really going to change anything. And so we just sort of end up going through the motions. That's exactly what Joash is doing here. What difference does it make if I shoot the arrow out the window? What difference does it make how many times I strike the ground? How much are we just like that sometimes? A lot of people get the idea, it seems, that Christianity is just about coming to a church building on Sundays. We listen to a sermon. We sing a few songs. We put our contribution in the offering plate. We take part in the communion. We shake a few hands, probably only of the people that we really kind of know well, our friends. And then we go home. And that's it. We've done our bit. That's pretty much all some people do for God. You see, what we've done when we do that, we've hit our arrows on the ground three times. And that's it. We've done the bare minimum. That's not what Christianity is all about. And in fact, if we do that, we haven't done anything commendable at all. I think about a parable Jesus tells in Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he's come in from the field, Come, eat at once, recline at my table. Will you not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterwards you'll eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. Are we supposed to attend services? Are we supposed to sing praises to God? Are we supposed to come here and fellowship together? Yes, absolutely. And all of those things are important. But if that's all we do, well, then we've just hit our three arrows on the ground. We're unworthy servants. We've done nothing beyond that minimum that God expects of us. And when I stand before God, I don't really want to tell him, well, I just did the minimum. I just did what I had to do, and and that was about it. Now, we know we we can't merit our salvation by doing good deeds. We can't rack up enough attaboys from God to deserve anything from him. But if all we're doing is just the minimum requirements of our faith, we've missed out. We're not only robbing God, we're we're robbing ourselves of what he intends us to be. Think of what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So do those good works. What if I don't know what to do? Maybe sometimes we feel like that. I don't know what to do. We can all do something. And I realize right here, talking to our Sunday night audience, 40, 50, 60 people that are here week in and out. week out, this is in some sense the audience that this message is not as essential for, because you are committed. Uh, so many of you are involved in a, in a number of works here in the church. You go above and beyond. But I don't want you to ever feel like whatever the message is that I'm preaching at you, all right? I'm in a lot of ways right there in the audience alongside you. Sometimes I choose what I want to talk about based on something that I feel like I need to hear. And the point of this is, no matter who we are, elder, deacon, minister, no matter how involved we are, we can always do something more. There's always more that we could be doing. So don't be satisfied with just doing the bare minimum. Volunteer to teach Bible class. They're always looking for more teachers. I I know that they have calls in the bulletin about that periodically. Take, Take a step up and try to do that. Take part in the food bank ministry here. Now, there are a lot of people that volunteer in that. I've seen a lot of you out there on a regular basis, but I can pretty much guarantee you that if you want to get involved and you went to Wayne and said, I want to help out, he could find Something for you to do. Philip talked about singing at the nursing home today. Daniel mentioned it this morning. What a great blessing it is for us and for those who are there. And in fact, if you were there today, you you probably noticed it. Some of you did. Uh, When we left, several of them said how much they appreciated it. Come back. we, We look forward to this. So if you haven't been to that, we had a good turnout today. But try that. Come out to that once a month. Philip's always looking for men to be involved in leading the worship service. Uh, If you feel like you'd like to lead a prayer or wait on the table, if you feel like you can lead singing, go step up. Don't wait for him to come to you. Volunteer to do it. If you want to come and and preach sometime, come talk to me about it. I'll I'll even help you out with that if you want to. I'll stand aside for that. Have a Bible study in your house. You don't even have to lead it. Uh, If you know of someone who you think is a likely candidate, go ahead and and set that up, and I'm sure someone here will be willing to help you with that. You can come to me, or I might not even be the best person for that. I I figured out already that Robert Ward is really great at studying with people in a small setting. Go talk to him. I'm sure he'd be willing to come and, and help out with that. Or just invite people from church over into your home to get to know them better. We might not think we can do much, and we might not think of that as a a work of the church, but you go to Acts chapter 2, and we find there that in those earliest days, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. They met together daily from house to house. There's probably even in a congregation of 150 or so people, some people that you don't know that well. Just invite them over. Get to know a couple or a family. Make that closer contact with your brothers and sisters in Christ. On and on and on we could go with this. The point is, this is not trying to be exhaustive in any way. The point is, I know everybody here tonight is committed and we're all working, we're all involved in things, but let's never be satisfied with that. Let's always try to do more. And if you think that you can't do anything, well, we can all do something. Maybe you think that inviting people into your home is not a big deal, but have you ever thought of that as the work of the church? It is. We all have different gifts that we can use. Not, none of us can do everything, but all of us can do something. You see, all Elisha asked Joash to do was to shoot an arrow out of the window. Now, I'm no archer. I don't know if we've got any bow hunters in here. I've never been bow hunting in my life, but even I could do that because you don't need to actually hit anything. All you have to do is avoid the window facing, and hopefully I could do that. And then all he asked him to do was to beat some arrows on the ground. You don't need an advanced degree, a master's, a PhD to do that. All he had to do was to do what he did, but to do it like it mattered, to do it like it meant something. So I want to urge all of us, whatever it is, to, to get up and to step out and to do something. If you see a need get involved don't be satisfied with just doing that minimum daily requirement for God I read a story about a fellow who was a a farmhand for an older couple and he lived in a bunkhouse there by the barn and every day he'd go out and he'd feed the livestock And he'd passed by the barn that was in increasingly dilapidated condition. It needed a new coat of paint, and the barn door was there hanging almost off its hinges. He walked by the fences that needed mending, the fields that had started to become overgrown. Even the farmhouse itself could use some attention. Some of the windows could stand to be replaced. The siding was in bad shape, but none of that was really his job. He saw it. But he just went on about what was his responsibility. Then one day, that older couple called him into their house and they set him down in the parlor. They explained how grateful they were for all the years that he'd worked for them, how much they valued him and his service. And because they were getting on up in years, they'd never had any children, they didn't have any family that would ever be interested in that farm. And so they told him that when they passed, they wanted to give the whole thing to him. Now, he said how grateful he was, how much he appreciated that, and how much he valued them too. And he got up and he went out and he saw all of those same things again. But now he looked at them in a totally different light and thought to himself, man, I've got to get busy fixing all of this stuff up. Why is that? because now all of it was going to belong to him. Now he was the heir to all of this. And he looked forward to making those improvements. God has made us, with Jesus, heirs to a great kingdom. And so I want to encourage us to realize the blessings that come from being an heir of God and to take an active part in helping to preserve and to grow and to to take pride in what we're doing for the kingdom. Let's not serve God because we've got to, but because we get to. Maybe you're here this evening and you haven't been serving god like you ought maybe you haven't been as involved as you'd like to be and you need to make changes and and recommit your life to god or maybe there's just some other sin some impediment in your relationship with him and you need to make a public acknowledgement tonight whatever your need may be if we can help you in any way you can make it known while we stand and while we sing